Hi everyone, it's Bud. I'm always fascinated by people who are in positions that 99.999% of the rest of us will never be in. Like writing comedy for a president. Who knows what that's like? Mark Katz does. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years, initial doubts, the plan Bs, and the passion to push forward. Mark Katz and I have known each other for a long time, since summer camp, all the way back to the early 70s. Being funny at summer camp is a requirement, but nobody goes on to do it for a living, except Mark Katz. He wrote all eight of President Clinton's correspondence dinner speeches in the 1990s. He's come up with more than a few clever and smart lines in his career. So I started by asking about one of them in his book, Clinton and Me, A Real-Life Political Comedy. Humor writers are funny people who are constantly in the process of convincing the world that they are indispensably funny, and at the same time, quietly trying to convince themselves of the same thing. Is that true now, as it was when you wrote it? (laughs) It, I I believe, yes, it is. And I believe it's a struggle that every humor writer goes through. Because if you are born with a brain miswired to kind of generate impudent impulses, you spend the rest of your life governing how to, how to use that. Um, you feel like you have something to say. You're ever, ever, you've trained yourself to hear setup lines where, and, and you're challenging yourself to spit back punchlines. And it's exhausting. It's quite exhausting. Uh, I've learned to kind of ignore them at some point or, or swallow lesser material if it's not worth speaking out loud. But you feel like you have something to say and people need to hear it. And, and really, you're, you're struggling to say the thing that is, has gone unsaid. I mean, that's really kind of the, the power of humor, as I understand it, is to surface things that go unsaid or say things that are difficult. That, and because they are difficult, humor is the best way to kind of get at, get at that thought. After all these years of doing this with powerful people, namely the President of the United States, doesn't get much more powerful than that. Uh, is this still a work in progress? Are there still moments where you say something which ah, I probably should have kept that one inside, or in you know in the car ride afterwards, like oh, that would have been a good one. I've been having this conversation with my son. Elias is 13 years old, and is this, and when I was 13, I was doing my best work as all people in my line of work in the back row of, of a health classroom, right? Uh, and I've been training him to say to hold back on stuff that's not worth saying. Only say the material that is worthy of you know someone with with a humor brain, and let someone else make the easy jokes. And how is he doing as far as figuring out which people and more importantly, which teachers have the humor brain? That could be that could be a, a tough lesson to learn. Uh, it is. And it's something you can only learn on your own. I can't teach him that. You know, that's a laboratory, <laughs> that's a laboratory that we all must go through. But, you know, I I've, and I spent my whole life learning it um, where you can say it and where you can't what you can get away with and what you can't. But the, the beauty of humor is that it gives you license if you know how to use it. It gives you license other people wouldn't dare to exercise. You can say the things uh, that would 
that if you said them in a non-humor format, format would get you in all kinds of trouble. But if you can touch upon it, if you can reference it, if you can put your pinky on it in a way that is skillful, uh, you've demonstrated what kind of this language of sub subtext can accomplish. Uh, before we get to the origin of all this uh, funny material and clever material, uh, let's just put it out there. One of us has had their hair, the hands of Barbara Streisand run through their <laughs> hair. Um, and you are laughing and I am not, which pretty much tells people who, uh, who was the recipient of that. Um, let me just say, like, where do you go from that? Well, that story, so that, that was in the aftermath of the first White House Correspondents Dinner speech, speech I wrote for President Clinton in 1993. It was a surreal experience. Um, and in the aftermath, I attended the Vanity Fair party, which was the hot party to get into. Um, and in this room, uh, you know, I'd written a speech and everyone, all these Hollywood stars, this is right at the start of the Clinton administration. I, I try to say that, you know, everyone wanted to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to people I would normally encounter in the pages of People magazine as I'm waiting to get my teeth cleaned. And, oh, the guy who wrote the speech is here or, you know, uh, and again, it's, you know, I didn't write the speech. I worked with the president. But, you know, on that night. And Clinton gave a very good speech that night. It was very well received. And all these people wanted to talk to me. And I was, did not, so at one point I'm standing across from Barbara Streisand and she's in the process of asking me if I would write for her. I wound up writing uh, some material for her, uh, for her, her comeback concert in 1994 in Las Vegas. But the she ran her fingers through my hair and said, you are so young. I was 30 at the time, but I looked younger than that. Um, and yes, so she did, in fact, uh, run her fingers through my hair. That is a correct story. Uh, yeah. After that, um, I mean, I don't know. I, it's, it's like sticking the, the final shot in a pickup basketball game to win 11-10. On the rare occasions when I've done that, I always just say, like, I'd, not, I'd like to announce my retirement right now. <laughs> the only thing I could think that talk to her about was I was in my high school production of Hello Dolly where I played the second cook uh, that welcomed uh, Dolly Levi back to the Harmonia Gardens restaurant and I'm refreshing giving a refresher uh, course in the plot points of Hello Dolly and she didn't remember any of it. Good call. Good call. <laughs> I, I thought maybe you might go for Look, um, Babs, uh, in people there's an F sharp minor chord that I'm really not so comfortable with. Oh, she might have appreciated that. In the interest of full disclosure, uh, I actually know the house that you grew up in uh, since uh, your older brother Bruce and I were friends at camp. And um, may I say that it was the first house, I'm not sure this lends to the comedy, but it was the first house that ever had a quadraphonic music system, which I would call a quadraphonic stereo system. And only years later realized that it can't be both, can't be quadraphonic <laughs> and stereo. Um, so I know a little bit, uh, and of course, I uh, hopefully at that point, as a 14 or 15 year old, showed absolute respect to you and your younger brother, Robbie, uh, <laughs> at the time, as 14 and 50 year olds are wont to do. Paint a picture for us of, like, say, the dinner table and well, the notion of trying to, shall we say, one up or get someone's laugh, be it your mom, be it your dad. Um, was that an ongoing conversation in your house? Well, you know, it's funny. So you, you didn't respect me. You just disrespect my sister, Ruthie, who will take umbrage if you didn't mention her. Uh, oh, my gosh. Well, 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 no, I'm building. 
I'm building. I'm <laughs> building here. You know, you it's funny that that you mind, can't bring your A material right at the beginning. You got to build to that. The formative comedy experiences in my life did not even take place in my own home. They took place in the home of my uncle Al who's one of my dad's best friends from dental school, who was a renegade dentist and countercultural uh, renaissance man. And in his basement, my brother Robbie and I and my cousin Charles discovered my Uncle Al's record collection uh, filled with Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, Robert Klein, uh, Woody Allen, Lenny Bruce. And we spent hour after hour after hour after hour listening to those records replaying them memorizing them we were drawn into them like we had just walked up to the burning bush we spent i can't even tell you how many hours we spent and then we started this process of um we got a tape recorder our own tape recorder and made our own comedy tapes me robbie and charlie WPITS was the name of our radio station, Polish International Television System. Their Polish jokes were in at the time. You wouldn't do them Excellent. now. You wouldn't do them now. But yeah, we created our own comedy routines and, and material. And it was a world of endless possibility. Just the joy we experienced listening to these albums um, and the raucous laughter we could generate at will uh, by just repeating the punchlines to one another um, was all the comedy trading uh, I received and could have ever needed. And you start to work that out. Your open mic night, I would assume, <laughs> um, from what I've read from your wonderful book, Clinton and Me, uh, you start to work those routines out in school. Well, I wasn't. Yeah, I was a I was a back row comedian in high school. I started out like that. Yeah, so I was uh, um, generating. Uh, jokes from the back of a classroom. Uh, the one I wrote about in Clinton and Me was I had an English teacher, Miss Nussbaum, who had this very odd uh, way of speaking. She would talk about she, she she was fond of the word quizzical. She would say, "Oh, class, we're going to have a chemist. We're going to have a vocabulary quizzical, a literature quizzical," and that word just kind of stuck in my head for weeks on end. I couldn't couldn't make sense of it. And then one day she says there's going to be a comprehensive end of semester vocabulary quizzical. And finally, the punchline came into my head. I raised my hand and said, excuse me, Miss Nussbaum, will that be a quizzical or a testicle? And that was the day I generated the loudest laugh I've ever experienced in my life um, <laughs> and got thrown out of the classroom. But it was a formative experience for me, uh, what it was like to kind of use that format and that forum um, to get like la the easy laughs of, of high school um, English classes. But I was hooked from there. And then I got in increasing trouble from now I'm, you know, because I, my whole class had encouraged me, I'm throwing out a lot of jokes all the time. This led to a number of conferences with uh, the vice principal and the principal about my uh, behavior in class. And I was encouraged to put my humor to work for the high school newspaper, the Ramshorn of Clarkstown High School North. And that was actually a very important career transition for me to kind of go from the spoken word to the written page. And it suited me. It's, I, would, I never would have graduated high school otherwise. Um, and it did introduce me to, to the challenge of uh, putting funny ideas to paper and how to communicate them on the page um, uh, to a reader as opposed to an audience. 
Is there any notion as you head off to college of any notion that this might be something I'd like to actually do? No, because in my household and the pre-professional and the, you know, there were only three job uh, descriptions we understood. You could either become a doctor, a dentist, or a lawyer. And if maybe if you had too much lead paint as a child, you could become an accountant. You know, <laughs> we were such, it was such a pre-professional environment that anything else would never have occurred to me. And had I said it out loud, it would have been received like announcing I was running off to join the circus. So I was quite certain that I was going to become a lawyer. 100% certain. There was no doubt. Uh, Bruce was going to become the doctor until uh, he, he failed uh chemistry and at Franklin and Marshall. My brother, Robert, uh, got in the 99th percentile of every test he ever took, but all he wanted to do was, was be a philosophy major, uh, which broke my dad's heart, even though my, my Robbie got a, an A plus, an A in his freshman year in, in chemistry. Um, and Ruthie uh, never showed any interest in dentistry as well, which was my dad. My dad was an orthodontist. So we were all being groomed to become orthodontists and none of that ever happened. By the way, going back to your answer from a couple of uh, minutes ago, when you said the phrase renegade dentist, I just got to say, maybe I'm funny this way, but when, when somebody's working in my mouth, I'm not really so interested in the renegade part. Well, know? dentists are a funny lot. You know, they're, they're smart, funny people who are smart, but not smart enough to go to medical school. And they're funny, but they're not funny enough to kind of entertain paid audiences. They get by with the same stock jokes. This isn't going to hurt me a bit uh, throughout their entire career. My dad was a lot better than that. He had some some very good material. And I remember working with him early on because I thought we could take it up a notch. But, you know... You know, stuff Take it like, up a notch. Not, not a phrase that dental patients want to hear, by the way. Just stuff like, you know, this procedure I'm about to do to you is so painful, it's illegal in many states, fortunately not in New York. You know, so that kind of stuff would put kids on notice that this guy had a sense of humor, uh, that he knew what he was, he was about to inflict pain on you, but... There was an unspoken bond of you're okay. I know what's going on here. I know what I'm doing. And so, and I'm so comfortable that I'm about to do it to you that I'm willing to joke with you about it. So um, in the book, one of the chapter titles is Portrait of the Wise Ass as a Young Man. Right. Which I think is inspired. So at Cornell, again, you, you've got your eye on something or you're just kind of I have no idea what's going to happen when I get out of here, and you're okay with that. I started out at Cornell. Cornell is a school of industrial school of uh, industrial and labor relations, so it was a feeder to Harvard Law School. And I was so certain I was going to law school, I basically gave away my undergraduate education for this idea that if I go to ILR, this ILR school, and get good grades, I can go to Harvard Law School. That's how sick. I mean, and what a wasted opportunity my own education was. I basically gave it away. Uh, but after three semesters, I realized this was not for me. Uh, I transferred from the ILR school to arts and sciences, started starting government, spent more time focusing on a column in the Cornell Daily Sun, a humor column, that also on occasion addressed campus issues. But that, so I went from the Ramshorn in high school to the Cornell Daily Sun, which is a very good college newspaper um, that, that everyone read. And it gave, uh, is, that's kind of where I honed my humor, humor voice. Um, 
and and would you know do humor pieces that I thought would you know notes from my freshman class, my freshman dorm, and and really found a way to communicate with my fellow classmates. Um, and my favorite days at Cornell was the days that I would have a piece in the Cornell Daily Sun, and I would go around and watch people read my article, you know, silently from across the room and see where they laughed. They didn't know I was watching them. Um, and this took place in a time where everyone read newspapers every day. That's no longer, now people stare at their phones every day. So I couldn't even approximate that experience today. <laughs> it was the Cornell Daily Sun um, and an internship I had. At, I, Cornell had a great Cornell and Washington program. I spent a semester in Washington and wrangled my way into an internship in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, if you can believe that, um, and uh, wrote some pieces without a byline for the Times for a semester and, and worked as a clerk, but really saw highly skilled, talented people working at the top of their profession. Just being a clerk to these great journalists taught me what it was to be a great professional in a high-stakes arena. And even though I didn't go on to become a journalist, um, want the, the opportunity to see these people at work and the standards to which they were held um, uh, opened my eyes to a, a world of possibility that people with talent and ambition and peculiar skills need not necessarily go to law school. I'm going to skip a couple of chapters ahead and get to your political career and uh, the first meeting with Michael Dukakis. <laughs> and you write about this in the book, and it's an intriguing first meeting. And what struck me was um, when when you meet him, I, I thought when I was reading it, I thought I was going to hear like, oh, you 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 said something. And, and maybe was there some notion in that meeting of what this guy needs material written for him and I can do that? So I met him at my brother, Robert, graduated a year after me. He went to, went to Harvard. Um, we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, I met him at, he spoke at my brother's graduation and my grandfather was there. And I got, I introduced my grand, my grandfather was sure Mike Dukakis had to have been Jewish because he just looked, he just presented as a kindred member of the tribe, even though he was Greek, famously Greek, incredibly Greek. Uh and the one element he missed from, he did not have that Jewish gene of self-effacing or natural humor. And I actually picked up on that. He did a, a kind of a perfunctory joke in his remarks and, and he gave that day. And in my head, I'd wrote and written 10 jokes better than the one he gave and was fantasizing about how I might share those jokes with him. I mean, the amazing thing from even at that age, and I went on to join that campaign and work on the Dukakis campaign. And really that is how I launched my career, uh, working for trying to get Mike Dukakis elected president. But even at that young age, I was 24 years old. I had an, a, a, a very odd dream that I wanted to write jokes for a president of the United States. It was a weird dream, but it was mine. And uh, he was my ticket. He was the only ticket. Um, and I wound up working on the Dukakis campaign, uh, working in, uh, starting out as a, as a, a volunteer doing clips at five in the morning, but ending up through a series of battlefield promotions. And by the way, I always encourage kids to join a political campaign out of school if they have no idea what they want to do, because it is the world's greatest meritocracy. If you can do the job 
you will get that job and they will give you a better job to do the next day because they just need it done. And that was my experience because whatever I did, I tried to do as best I could. And, and I was pitching jokes on the side and someone took note of this, a man named Kirk O'Donnell caught wind, who was one of the higher ups on the campaign, caught wind. There was a kid in the press office who had a stack full of, a, a folder full of jokes and um, came looking for me one day and I started pitching him my jokes and he, I made him laugh and he had the world's greatest laugh and he said, come with me. And from that day on, I got transferred from a kid working in the press office to working on the what was known as the Dukakis campaign rapid response team and we're put in an office uh, the size of a large telephone booth with me, a guy named Andy Savitz, uh, and a guy named George Stephanopoulos. And we had our trusty intern, Michael Peterson. And the three of us were the rapid response team, and it was our job to come up with the the, the rejoinders of the day, the, the, the sound bites, sort of these hand grenades and the, the hand-to-hand conf- combat that is, uh, you know, political warfare. And it was my job on that team to come up with the funny ones, the funny sound bites, the self-effacing, the compelling, the memorable, the ones that that kind of said the things that were hard to say or, or took took the shots that you couldn't, that would be too mean to say if they weren't done in the form of humor. And that, so it was my job to write the jokes. So I'm the, you're talking, bud, to the guy who made Mike Dukakis so funny. Uh, back when people who knew who Mike Dukakis was, that line used to get a lot of laughs. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he's kind of been lost to history in a significant way. I'm very proud to have worked in his campaign um, and learned a lot and learned some of the formative lessons and met some of the most important people I would ever meet in my professional career uh, in that campaign. So the work that really opened the door for you to eventually get to the Clinton White House, which we'll get to in a second, is a speech for Madeleine Albright. That's right. And so, first of all, uh, how did that come about? And second of all, what is that first time like when you're at a big dinner, Gridiron Club, I believe, That's right. and tons of people in the room, and you are expecting to hear the words that you've written? Most of us will never, ever, ever be in that position. Is there a way you can describe it? Well, so how my boss in the Dukakis campaign called me up and said, Madeline Albright needs help with a gridiron speech. Are you available? I was un- just been fired from a job in an advertising agency at the time. I was incredibly available. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I met to went to go meet with her. It was the first time I'd written a speech. It was I'd never written a speech before. And or and a gridiron speech is its own very specific format. And I read as many gridiron speeches as I could get my hands on. I talked to anyone who would talk to me who'd ever been to a gridiron dinner. Um, and and just you, there's no substitute for doing your homework. And you learn, you read great speeches and tried to take notes and understand why they were great. You read blah speeches and tried to identify missed opportunities. And you sit across from Madeleine Albright, who was then U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and went to, I went to the U.N. to meet with her. And you have to convince her you know what you're doing, even though you've never done it before. So you, you it's a classic example of fake it till you make it. But I did sense an opportunity for her. I honestly did. The other speakers that night were President Clinton and Bob Dole. And she was a complete afterthought on the program. No one was expecting her to be funny. And I said, if, if we do this right, if we, because your expectations are so low, 
if we do this right, your speech will be the speech people are talking about when we're all done. Um, and, and I tapped into our shared experiences. And when you do a speech for someone, you're basically, it's like you don't write the speech for them. It's like doing a term paper with someone from college. You are collaborating. You are listening carefully. And I call it listening for the distant echo of a great idea when letting someone talk. And, and they say something and, and you say, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. And you're trying to hone in on, on what the, the germ of an idea that could be the premise of a great speech. And when she was talking about the experience that I lived, longer than I lived it, hoping that we would one day get a Democratic president to the United States, and she had worked from everyone back to Edwin Muskie, you know, her plan, she finally, her dream came true. Bill Clinton got elected, finally Democrat won, and she was on the kitchen cabinet who became a member of his real cabinet. Um, and what it was like uh, to wait all that time and finally have this moment of redemption. And we wrote a whole speech about this long overdue career that she'd spent an entire career hoping might happen. And here she was. It was happening. She was giving a speech at the Gridiron Club. Obviously, we could spend three hours just talking about the experiences with President Clinton. Uh, where were you when you got the phone call? Come on down to the White House now and we want you to write for President Clinton. I made that phone call. So I basically talked my way into the job. I mean, that night, the night of the Madeleine Albright speech, President Clinton asked me if I would work on his upcoming White House Correspondence Center speech. And I had imagined, yes, of course, yes, uh, I'm available. Why don't we spend a weekend at Camp David? You and I will just uh, bat around some ideas. <laughs> that call never happened, right? And instead, they called, D.D. Myers called me up and said, hey, yeah, yeah, uh, would you mind just faxing down some jokes so we can use... That was not what I had in mind. So I basically invented the idea that I was going to be down in Washington that week anyway. Why don't I swing by the White House? We'll have a meeting. Maybe you can find an empty desk. I can set up shop. And she's like, oh, uh, okay, yeah, I guess so. And I basically did what most world leaders could not do is get my walk, talk my way into the White House, find a way to find a desk set up shop and assert the idea that I would be the guy to write this speech from start to finish. And basically, no one stopped me. No one said, call security, get this guy out of here. I just kept on asserting this idea that I was writing the speech until I was writing the speech. So it's one of the most audacious things I've ever done. Um, but it's basically how I, I started my career. Where do you think that comes from? That <laughs> confidence... Seriously, where do you think that kind of confidence comes from to whatever you're feeling internally to present publicly like, I'm the guy and I'm here to help and here's how this is going to work? That's a great question, bud. You know, to get into this line of work, you have to be fully committed to inflicting yourself upon the world. You know, just asserting that, and I had this belief, founded not in a lot, but I did have it, that... I was the guy who could write the jokes this guy needed, who could come up with the idea. And it's so much more about jokes. It's what's the comic idea. And these the White House Correspondents Dinner are, is not a collection of jokes, although that's one way to write it, but that's not how I write it. It's always what's the right comic retort to this moment in time? What's the big idea? What's the idea that you can hang 50 really good jokes off of, but... Um, that is a powerful idea that that gets you through an entire speech. And that is how 
you know, the idea that I would bring to these speeches. And I thought that I thought I could bring to this process. You know, my favorite thing about what I learned about the Gridiron Club and what I was about to learn about the White House Correspondents Dinner, it is the, the one or two day of the year that people say in Washington the stuff that never gets said, the stuff the president could never say, uh, could never own up to. But if you can write the right joke or come up with the right idea, you can get those words out of his mouth. And that, to me, was the most interesting part. I mean, I had seen enough of political dialogue to kind of recoil at at spin. And I later came up with this construct. You know, humor flatters where spin insults. Spin is, I think you're just dumb enough to believe this. And then you say it, right? But humor is, I think you're smart enough to understand what I'm really trying to say here and work with me so we can understand it together. And these gridiron dinners and White House Correspondents Dinners are an exercise in that. And you can say so much more. The pre- you can write a joke where the president implicitly says things he would explicitly deny the day before or the day after that speech. And if you can do that, you have kind of escaped the boundaries of political rhetoric. And that's really what interested me most about it and what I thought I could bring to the process. Listening, the training I got, listening to all those comedy albums uh, taught me how to construct a joke and how to use a piece of information that lives in a room to let the audience unlock its meaning. We often hear about various industries Oh, you need a thick skin for this. Uh, And I would imagine going into the Oval Office or wherever you might be meeting the president of the United States to talk about a speech that is supposed to be funny, which is not easily done. uh, You need a thick skin. Is there an anecdote, a story that that is there an anecdote that best exemplifies that a moment where uh, this is not so funny right now? Well, look, the first first time I came into him in the aftermath of the Madeleine Albright's speech, he hated my draft. And his only response was, this isn't nearly as funny as Madeleine Albright's speech. <laughs> you know, so the, the speech that got me into the room was now an albatross around my neck. Um, and there was material in there that was that was fine and good. And he, gave, he wound up giving a good speech, but it was his staff around him. It was George Stephanopoulos and David Dreyer who had to point out to him uh, you know, there was some really compelling stuff in there. And there's one joke in there that I believe has, has stood the test of time. That speech he gave. Um, you know, th- in the aftermath of his first 100 days in office, which went really, really poorly, there was one crisis after another, President Clinton's first 100 days in office. And it corresponded, his 100th day in office corresponded to the night of the White House Correspondents in their speech. And there were all these articles in the paper how his presidency was off to a terrible terrible start. And the joke I wrote for him that was in the draft that was in his hands was, I don't think I'm doing that bad. After his first 100 days in office, William Henry Harrison had already been dead for 68 days. And then the punchline after that was, I had a stimulus package that lived longer than that, which is one of the (laughs) proposals that died. Um, And that joke is an example of things you know, the, the power of political humor, because they, in that joke, he implicitly conceded that he had a terrible first day, right? The uh, first 100 days. 
And I, I, this, thought, this, this thought exercise, which was, you know, if, if the White House press secretary had opened with that joke, the, uh, you know, in the White House briefing, briefing room, and told that joke and then followed it with, but here's what I have accomplished, right? He, by, by conceding the obvious, you buy back so much credibility, right? So if you open with that joke where you concede the obvious, yes, these hundred days did not go exactly as planned. But by saying it and conceding it, you, the credibility you buy is valuable political capital that can be put to good use, right? And to say, but here's what I have accomplished. Boom, 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 and boom. I now believe the boom, 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 boom in a way that I would not have before. And that's, and that's the power of a, a line that where you, you know, take aim at yourself in a way that your worst enemy might also see as an opportunity. But if you can get to the joke first, um, you've done yourself and find the correct way to say it, which is the hard part, um, you've done yourself a world of good. Mark, we're coming down the stretch here. It strikes me that that joke, which is a great joke, also is a link between your growing up and learning a love of comedy and the work that you do. In other words, that joke has remnants of the Tom Lair joke. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, when he talks about Mozart, you know, it's uh, Mozart was my age. He'd been dead for two years. You know what? That's funny. So, yes, there's no such thing as a good joke. And that is that joke. And I know that joke. And I'm sure that joke was in my brain when I wrote that joke. OK, so, yes, you you're a student of comedy. 0.001% of the people in the room right. knew that joke. The oh, joke that's not to joke. take away from the, no, no, the, I know the that, joke that you wrote. Speaking as someone, okay, so you just revealed yourself as a student of comedy, as, as am I, and that is our that is our common bond. So Please so be I, seated, everyone, by the exactly. way. Exactly. So, but my point is there's something to learn from every joke, right? And if you do the math on jokes, if, you, if you're listening critically to those albums I was listening to or watching a great comedian – you know, do their work and doing the math on, on what makes a joke great. You are taking notes and figuring out the equation and you are learning and you're learning how to apply that equation. So yes, congratulations to you, bud. No Thank one you. else has pointed that out to me that the secret I knew that I knew that joke exists and I knew I was hearkening back to it. All right. Just, just for the record, I was, I'll let you know now that we're only going to use about 30 seconds of this interview and that's the 30 seconds. We're going to use. <laughs> so. Is there a phone call home, perhaps after the first Clinton speech? And is there, from your parents, uh, some kind of connection of, I had this love long ago growing up. I may not have gone on to dental school or law school or whatever, but I'm calling home as the guy who wrote the speech tonight for the president of the United yes, States. Yes, I did have that experience. Um, and I did, did one better. I had the opportunity to uh, have my parents invited to a radio address in the Saturday um, after uh, the White House Correspondence Center, and um, it was before the Correspondence Center, and uh, I got to introduce my parents to the President of the United States, which is a moment you are not prepared for, right? Because hmm. it's so much is happening. You know, uh, when the first time I walked into the Oval Office, I thought I remembered that I was a son grandson of a guy who got on a boat who came to this country, right? It gets me every time. Forgive me. And uh, it does get me. And I got to introduce my parents, 
the son of the guy who got on the, the son of people who got on the boat to come to this country. And my my mother said to the president of the United States after he was done effusively praising the material I presented to him and how much fun it was working together on these speeches. My mother said, "You just uh, praise Mark for the very same things I used to spank him for, right?" <laughs> So that was, you know, that was the moment where it all came together, where, you know, as someone who generates impudent impulses and figure, tried to figure out how to govern them over the course of a lifetime, that moment all came together when I introduced the President of the United States to my mother, um, and they connected on the idea that, yes, uh, this guy, we, we found, finally found a, a way to put this guy's peculiar skills to good use. It's all material. <laughs> right. It's all material. Mark, always loved your work, always been proud of you. It was a lot of fun, and uh, but you know, you and I um, do have a shared experience going back to summer camp, which is where, you know, you learn the great thing about summer camp, where I met you, you were older, but you figure out who you are, right? Away from your parents, away from school, you know, you figure out who, who God, who, what God put you on earth to do. Um, and one of the things I learned at summer camp is, you know, got a handle on my peculiar skills. Um, and I met you there and uh, I figured out who I was and I've been, you know, being that person ever since. Mark Katz. Many of the stories behind his writing, all of the correspondence dinner speeches for President Clinton, are in his terrific book, Clinton and Me, a real-life political comedy. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.